Welcome to the Hale Report. My name is Lyric Hughes Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView and your host today, Friday, January 28, 2022. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. If you'd like to subscribe to our monthly newsletter, as well as listen to our podcasts, please visit our website, and if you can, support us on Substack. You can also find past podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all of the usual places. My guest today for our 24th episode is Elizabeth C. Economy. I met Liz when she was Director of Asia Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. She is currently on leave from the Hoover Institution at Stanford and a Senior Advisor for China to the Secretary of Commerce. Her comments today represent her personal views and not the views of the Department of Commerce. Liz is an amazingly prolific and prescient writer. In The River Runs Black in 2011, to give just one example, she was one of the first China watchers to write about China's environmental degradation. Her newest book, The World According to China, is equally pathbreaking. Liz, welcome to the Hale Report. Thanks so much. Great to be here, Lyric. Well, you know, I always ask um, my guests, first of all, how they became interested in what became their life's work. How did you get involved in China? I've never asked you that question, and I should have. <laughs> well, it's it's a long and short torturous history that, <laughs> that begins with actually um, the fact that I studied the Soviet Union uh, when I was in college, uh, when there was a Soviet Union. And uh, I lived in Leningrad. I studied Russian throughout. Then I went to get my master's, also focusing on Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, I worked for two years at the CIA as the Gorbachev analyst, if you can believe it, back then yes. in the mid to late uh, 1980s. And then when I went to back to school to get my PhD at the University of Michigan, the professors there said, you know, why don't you think about doing comparative politics? You have a very strong background in the Soviet Union. Why not also do China? Uh, mm-hmm. and, and the University of Michigan had a phenomenal China faculty and so I said, okay, I'll do comparative communism. And, and so I started studying Chinese uh, at that time and um, really began focusing on China. And just to, to fast forward, when I finished my PhD, it was then 1994. The truth of it is there were no Russia jobs because Russia was no longer the Soviet Union. It was Russia. Nobody cared anymore. Fools that they are. Look at what's happening right. today. Exactly. And, exactly. And, 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 I, and I got a China job uh, out of the University of Washington. So that's really how my trajectory <laughs> emerged. You know, unlike many, um, many China scholars, it didn't begin from a deep and abiding love and fascination with China. It came out of the Soviet Union and the kind of comparative communism perspective. What I found remarkable about your book was not just the information, Liz, that you present, but the way you put it all together. I spend about half my day reading about China, listening about China. But what I found compelling about your book was way, the way you link together all the events of the past few years and how you explain China's perspective. For example, you write about the decoupling story, not just from the U.S. point of view, but from China's. It's not just about supply chains, but technological competition. 
Um, it's not just the U.S. Uh, seeking to decouple. It's China's seeking to decouple. Where does this lead us? Did, did I read the book correctly? Is that your no? You did and, and major it, point. Yeah, that is that is one of the the main points I make in in that in that chapter on on sort of China's how China's looking at itself within the context of the global economy. I think you know it's interesting because a lot of people kind of assume it was the Trump administration, you know, with the imposition of the tariffs that really began this process of decoupling somehow. But actually, if you look back to 2015 and China's Made in China 2025 program, that really signaled in some important ways, you know, this idea that China was moving away from the notion of openness, right, and and competition, that we should that we should continue to look for, you know, economic reform uh, within China, the kind of reform that would open, right, to to greater um, international engagement. Uh, because in point of fact, what you know, Made in China 2025 said was that you know the Chinese uh, government wanted mm. Chinese companies to dominate in the manufacturing of components uh, in ten critical cutting edge areas of technology, uh, and would undertake all sorts of you know put in place all sorts of informal barriers to market entry to ensure that that would happen. Right, passing like little regulations, like you know medical devices. If you want to use uh, a medical device, you know made from outside of China. Um, to a hospital, you're not going to be reinsured. You're not going to be um, receive uh, insurance for that uh, operation. Reimbursement, that you do, mm-hmm. right? Reimbursement, exactly. Or you know, if you want to use a foreign-made medical device, you have to appeal to the local government and explain why you want to do this. So you know, all of these things are mechanisms for deterring right actors from right. using foreign-made products. And so that was the beginning, I think, and it really has only accelerated now with Xi Jinping's dual circulation theory. And um, you know, I think it's a it's a way I think that that she looks at, at the Chinese economy as being able to, you know, innovate and, and manufacture and consume largely within itself and just engage with the global economy to the extent that China wants to, right? right. Control its engagement in a in a really radically different way from what's come before. I just wonder if this effort to control and the reaction here leads to a poorer world overall. We've had a, a tremendous period of prosperity, as has China. And I read a study at Princeton that said that actually, although the U.S. and China lost in terms of their bilateral trade, the next 50 export con- uh, com- countries made up for it, and they increased their internal trade by 3% last year. So I'm, I'm wondering if this, is a, 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 this competition is beneficial overall. Well, as you say, I think it's a really smart point. It is beneficial for other countries. Right. (laughs) It hasn't really been beneficial for the United States, um, as far as I can tell. Uh, And I think, you know, look, that's part of what we need to do now is to sort of rethink and recalibrate and figure out, for example, you know, what of the Trump administration's, you know, economic policies, you know, have actually achieved the end objective, what policies have not, how do we recalibrate? And what is our real leverage with regard to China, right? Because Mm -hmm. I think that's also something that the United States has had to come to appreciate that China today is not China of 20 years ago. And it's not looking to learn from the United States in in many respects. Um, And so we've got to think about, you know, how we find new leverage uh, in terms of trying to get China, you know, back on what we would consider to be a, a good track. 
Right. And, and this has led to a lot of confusion um, since uh, you're working at Department of Commerce. And I'm sure you know, for U.S. companies, um, I was at an event in Washington at the cocktail party. I asked this group of American companies, do they feel the U.S. government has their back in China now? Are they getting the help that they need? Everybody immediately said, no, they are not. Um, does trade matter more right now in this administration? Has national security overridden trade concerns, both in China and in the United States, in your view? Well, I, I don't. I don't think I can, you know, speak for the U.S. government on on you know how it views trade versus national security. I think you know both are incredibly important, um, and certainly from my perspective. Right. We want U.S. companies to be in China competing and winning. Right. right. So, you know, I think I think the issue is how do we um, how do we ensure that uh, we protect our national security and we, you know, continue to uh, advance our you know human rights perspectives that we do that in a smart way, because that is essential. Obviously, those those need to be, you know, number one uh, priority. And then outside of that, right, how do we help our companies, you know, do business in China? I think nobody doesn't want to see, you know, Starbucks selling lattes in China. Nobody right. doesn't want to see Mars Candy Bar selling candy in China. So I think that's, um, you know, that is a job. And, and frankly, not to give an advertisement for the Commerce Department, that work goes on every single day out of commerce on the ground in China, right? All the types of, you know, ec local based export promotion that's gone on for decades continues to go on. Uh, you know, we have teams in many major cities in China doing just this work. I, I will say, of course, it's gotten much more difficult. It's gotten much more difficult because um, of COVID, right? So mm -hmm. a lot of the, you know, right. normal interactions that you would have, right? Going to visit to cities or, you know, sending senior officials over there to do this kind of work. You simply can't do it now. Right. It's right. going to be export promotion via video, which, let's face it, is still not as effective, useful, but mm -hmm. it's not going to be as effective. Right. So I think getting back to, you know, some sense of, of normalcy um, is going to be important um, in order to really make the kinds of advances that we need to to help our companies. Um, and the last point I'll make is, you know, we do have a new ambassador going to China. Right. Nick Burns. He's going right. to be going. Uh, he should be leaving within the next few weeks. And I think he's going to be in the a really important and effective advocate um, for U.S. interests, including the uh, U.S. business community. Well, I'm happy to give an advertisement for the Commerce Department because the reason I first went to China in 79 was a Commerce Department um, organized trip. Oh. And someone at the Foreign Commercial Office here in Chicago said, Lyric, don't put all your eggs in the Japan basket. China's the next big thing. So that's why I went. So that's I'm terrific. very happy, happy to tout the Commerce Department <laughs> because Thank it you. changed my life, actually. Well, the Olympics are upon us next week. And you write in the book about uh, a company that asks you, should they sponsor or not sponsor the Olympics? But companies like Coca-Cola, for example, have gone ahead. Do you see the Olympics as an example of what you describe elsewhere as institutional capture by China around the world of these global events and these global organizations? Yeah. I mean, look, I think China should never have been able to get the Olympics flat out. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. um, they didn't live up to their promises in 2008. Uh, there was, you know, 
no reason they should have been given the Olympics this time around. I mean, the only other option, I guess, was Kazakhstan, but still, um, <laughs> you know, I, I think um, you, you don't reward the kind of behavior that, that we're seeing right now uh, with China. The Olympic spirit is, yes, the spirit of, of competition and athleticism, um, but it also, you know, has imbued within it, you know, values of human rights. And so I think that is clearly not being uh, upheld in China today. Um, in terms of, of companies, I'll say, you know, one thing that I've really seen um, where I'm working now is that most U.S. companies want to do the right thing, right? Yes, of course, they want to make profits in China and everywhere that they're doing business, but they're also, you know, first and foremost, they're American companies and they understand that the rules and the norms and the institutions that the U.S. government, you know, has helped to basically to build in the you know, international system and continues to be you know, a primary force in supporting and bolstering, that these are the institutions that have enabled them to succeed uh, globally as companies. Um, and in turn, I think uh, there is and will be an increasing appreciation within the U.S. government that you know, companies create wealth. They're the source of innovation. They're the source jobs. of American jobs. Mm -hmm. This is a partnership. And so U.S. companies and the U.S. government need to work together and row in the same direction. And when we do that, you know, I think we are unstoppable. And, and I think that's another thing that's, um, that's certainly, you know, we're working on. Uh, and I think it's a really important moment for our country right now is, is to get back to that sense that we're all on the same team. Well, of course, we think our model is worth emulating. But what is new is that China thinks that its model is also worth emulating. And the BRI is a good example of that. In your view, is China seeking a multipolar world or really a unipolar world based on Chinese values? That's what I'm trying to, to understand myself right now. Right. I mean, it's, it's clear that in Xi Jinping speak, he's seeking a multipolar world, right? Not a unipolar world. But if you stop to think about it, if you, you take a step back, you realize that, um, you know, there was an article called, you know, basically arguing that, that um, in foreign affairs, arguing that China just wants to make the world safe for autocracy, right? Just right. wants to make it safe. It gives that sense that it just wants a bounded space for itself, right? Mm -hmm. And other autocracies, maybe. The problem is making the world safe for autocracy makes it unsafe for, for democracy. democracy, right? You know, and right. so I think it's hard. Some people don't quite appreciate that. So as we see China, for example, you know, offering you know, cyber, you know, security training to officials in Belt and Road countries, how to do real-time censorship of the internet. Um, you know, that's bolstering authoritarianism, right? Then it takes that same principle, those same principles, and brings them to the United Nations and tries to, you know, rewrite, you know, norms and values around human rights and around internet governance. It puts forward ideas like new IP, which basically would give the state within the United Nations to give the state the right to control the connection to any internet connected device. You could just, just like a, you know, just turn it off. So I think there's not, you know, that system, it's not really multipolar, right? For China to feel safe, it has to transform the system, which is why I make the argument in the book right up front that it's not simply about it's not about maintaining the system. It's not about just even reforming around the margins. It is a transformational vision, you know, across multiple dimensions. And we have to appreciate that, 
even come, if the language to coming out of Beijing, mm-hmm. yeah, even if the language coming mm-hmm. out of Beijing isn't that, that is the reality. How much of this do you think emanates from Xi Jinping himself? Is he a product of the system or is he the driver of these changes? Everything has changed since he came into power, but also that makes him a single point of failure in the system too, should anything happen to him. How do you look at that? Um, dynamic. I keep waiting for that single point of failure to fail. <laughs> so so I, would say, I would say, um, look, this is a really important, um, a really important discussion um, in terms of, you know, is, yes, is Xi Jinping, you know, the change agent or is he just doing what any other Chinese leader would do? And, I, you know, my argument for this is that Xi Jinping you know, in some respects has simply accelerated what was already going on, right? So for example, if you look at the South China Sea, it was already, you know, an area of contention. The Chinese were becoming more more militarily aggressive even before he became general secretary of the Communist Party. So by 2010, you were seeing a lot more activity. He came into power at the end of 2012. But, But in many respects, right, he has either accelerated things to the point that they're virtually unrecognizable from what came before, or he right. really has simply transformed, right? The idea that, that other countries, you know, could learn from China, should emulate China, you know, we haven't heard that since Mao Zedong. Right. You know, that is fundamentally different. You know, the passage, for example, of the law on managing foreign NGOs in 2017 Right. That took the number of NGOs from over seven foreign NGOs working in China on issues like, you know, poverty alleviation, health, et cetera, from over 7,000 to about 400. Right. That's a, a that is a systemic transformation in the ability of the Chinese people to engage with their counterparts outside the country. Right. That with civil society engagement fundamentally transformed under Xi Jinping. So, I mean, and that all the domestic changes, of course. Right. I don't know how you can look at what's taken place over the past decade, almost since he came to power and not see that he is just a transformative figure in Chinese history. Mm -hmm. Much like Trump was a transformative figure as well, I think. And a hugely consequential. Yeah. Absolutely, but yeah. only well, for four years. <laughs> but only for four years. Okay, we, we won't go there. No, okay. no, we're not going to go. To, you know, the Trump administration did some important things on China. So no, that's right. So we'll give we'll give them that for sure. So it seems while China is projecting itself as being a stabilizing force in the world, what you're describing is really a destabilizing force. But I'm sensing some retrenchment. The wolf warrior diplomacy that you write about seems to have toned down. And and also I've seen some speeches, some articles focused on welcoming foreign investment. My suspicion is is that that's because there are groups within the elites that think that things have gone too far. And also I think China's economy is in worse shape than we are able to see from our vantage point. Do you see a, a little bit of a pivoting going on? So I haven't seen much in the way of the toning down of the wolf warrior diplomacy. I think it's still there. Um, it'll just depend on the issues um, 
but I'd be I'd welcome it. And you're but you're absolutely right that there are groups within China who recognize that that kind of diplomacy wasn't doing China any favors, right? They could look right. and see that the you know public opinion polls globally were at like record lows in terms of things like you know trust in Xi Jinping or do you want China to be the regional leader in Southeast Asia? Um, so you know there are many people that I spoke with. You know there are many Zoom discussions during mm-hmm. COVID pandemic with Chinese colleagues, you know scholars and, and foreign policy analysts. Many of them, you know, would say. Yes, wolf warrior diplomacy is coming to an end. You know, they it's clear that they they thought that this was not the not helpful to China. I, I haven't I, I'm not sure that's true. In terms of the Chinese okay. economy, though, I would say again, I think that the tactic here is to welcome foreign investment, foreign capital where China believes that it needs it, or in areas where it super doesn't need it and that foreign capital has no chance of doing anything anyway, or foreign investment has no chance of doing anything. It's not competitive, basically. So getting the skills and the know-how and the capital in areas where they would like it, and Mm -hmm. then just, oh, sure, you can come on in, but by the way, your market share is, you know, they're Mm. never going to be bigger than 2% or so. So I just think, I think Mm -hmm. that's sort of the strategy. So I'm not, I'm not seeing an enormous shift, um, but I, Mm -hmm. I do think there is the potential for elites within China you know, the very senior levels of the Chinese leadership um, to begin to try to moderate some of Xi Jinping's policies. Because like you, I think both the domestic challenges that China's facing now, including economy, but also, you know, polarization within their own society and and the demographic issues, um, obviously the real estate crisis. I mean, many of these things have been in play for 10 years. And basically what you're saying is that Xi Jinping hasn't addressed them yet, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have the, you know, sort of headwinds coming from the international community on a number of issues. Um, I think there's there's a, you know, a, a chance, an opportunity here for some of the more moderate officials to say, we do need to take a step back. Um, and this is not moving us in the right direction. So we'll have to wait to see. One of the very memorable lines in your book is in a system of performative rather than electoral accountability, a perceived failure in pandemic management could result in a governance crisis. So in addition to um, the economic slowdown and not delivering on economic promises, do you think there's a scenario in which China could abandon its zero tolerance policy because the effects are just so um, deleterious, both internally and externally. I know our, our friend Yanjin Huang has recently written about this, and you've described the problems with China's vaccination. Where does this go? Could we be facing a crisis this year in China that we don't, that it's not being foreseen or adequate, adequately forecast? No, I mean, I think that's always a possibility, right? Again, as a mm-hmm. student of the Soviet Union, right? Nobody expected yeah. a Gorbachev. <laughs> Anything and, can happen. And, and, and mm-hmm. right, and then a Putin, well, you know, in between, a couple too. But but I think, um, no, that's right. So I think we should never never say never when it comes to a country like China where, you know, we don't have perfect visibility into what's going on inside right. the country. And so right. we, we really can't know. But I think it is clear there are some voices already within China. And I think uh, Yan Zhong's piece uh, in Foreign Affairs, which I thought was terrific, um, you raised this. There are already some scientists, some doctors who are saying, we need to move past this zero COVID strategy, right? For economic reasons, it's not good. You know, certainly people, you know, don't like being locked down, you know, 200,000 people locked down because of one COVID case. 
I mean, that's pretty extraordinary. Um, so I think I think the mood also, you know, can can shift within China. Um, China, but I think it's hard for the Chinese government. They've certainly gotten a lot of positive attention, you know, within China, a lot of support and globally for their, you know, low, low number of deaths. And it is an achievement uh, that, you know, we should recognize. Um, but how to move past this when your vaccines are not, you know, enormously efficacious and, um, and apparently, you know, the hospital system isn't really prepared, you know, to deal with you know, millions, frankly, of Omicron cases, right? And so how to do that, I think they they are must be grappling with that on a daily right. basis, like right. how to do this, when to start this. Um, so uh, we'll have to see. But, I, you know, look, we saw, frankly, in the first month and a half with the death of Dr. Li Wenliang, you know, a million people on China's internet, right, call for freedom of speech, you know, complain about the government, blame the government for uh, this doctor's death. He was, of course, the whistleblower, one of the first whistleblowers about COVID. Um, so we know that this sentiment is there within the Chinese population. We know there is dissent and discontent. Um, so what could, you know, cause that to sort of um, emerge and grow into something more significant? I don't, I don't know, but it's always there. Right. I can't not ask you about Taiwan and the future of Taiwan and what you think about it. We seem to be stalemated in a way right now, kind of a dangerous stalemate. Will Taiwan eventually become Hong Kong? How do you picture the future of Taiwan? Yeah, well, it is you know clearly my fervent hope that Taiwan never uh, has the future of Hong Kong, um, unless the Taiwanese people decide that's what they want. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, I think it is it is a really challenging situation. You know, Xi Jinping has said uh, that reunification with Taiwan is one of his 14 must-do items. He said, mm -hmm. you know, there can be no great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation unless, you know, Taiwan uh, is part of, of mainland China. Um, and at the same time, you know, Taiwan is a vibrant democracy of 21 million people. They've managed through COVID, you know, beautifully as a democracy. Um, you've got now... Uh, you know, small European states um, like the Czech Republic, and Lithuania, Slovakia, Lithuania, <laughs> right, enhancing their diplomatic relations with Taiwan, you know, at the risk of their relations with this, you know, economic behemoth China. Um, you've got other European countries sort of developing Indo-Pacific strategies for the first time, the big ones like France and England and uh, Germany, for the first time recognizing that the region is important for security reasons, including Taiwan, not just, you know, as a place for trade and investment. Um, and I think importantly, uh, you know, Australia and Japan both have stepped up and said that the future of Taiwan's security is integrally tied to their own. And Australia right. has gone so far to say that if there were conflict, if there were kinetic conflict, if China did undertake some kind of military action and the U.S., you know, came into that, that Australia would stand with the United States. So this is such a, a dynamic, you know, an evolving situation. I think in terms of U.S. And, and what the U.S. should be thinking about and doing is, yes, what it's doing is great in terms of engaging a much broader range of countries to think about and to, to you know, partner with around ensuring Taiwan's uh, sort of safety, right? Helping to develop a deterrent capability, a political deterrent capability for Taiwan. But at the same time, we have to be really careful not to 
sort of promote Taiwan politically and diplomatically and not give them a real security uh, uh, military right. deterrent. Um, right. Because you don't want, uh, you know, what happened in Hong Kong to happen in Taiwan. And I think we cannot underestimate um, the importance of sovereignty to Xi Jinping, the sort of high risk tolerance that he has, right? I mean, people in the United States believed that things like the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, which, you know, promised, basically warned Beijing that if you do something to undermine one country, two systems, we're going to pull out all of Hong Kong's special economic privileges, right? And it was, it was a mistaken belief that that would be enough of a deterrent somehow, uh-huh. right? Yeah, that, that, yeah. that losing that economic uh, element would somehow cause Beijing to take a step back. And I don't think we should make that assessment with Taiwan. Yeah, I don't politics always trumps economics. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. I, at least I would say in the mind of Xi Jinping, that is yes. the case. That's the case. So I'd like to bring this back to your original interest in the Soviet Union. So John Mearsheimer was my guest in November. And what he said, I'm sure you're probably aware of this argument, is that we made a huge strategic mistake decades ago. When the Soviet Union fell, we had originally engaged with China in order to counter the Soviet Union. But when it fell, we should have pivoted in terms of our policy and re-engaged with Russia. And um, instead of helping our eventual adversary, that is China, to become more politically and economically powerful around the world. Do you agree with that? It looks like you don't. I mean, I don't don't remember that when the Soviet Union fell, we didn't engage with Russia. I think I remember it differently. I think we did engage with Russia at at the time. um, And I think we were broadly supportive of um, certainly of Gorbachev and then of Yeltsin, things didn't work out the way that we wanted them to work out. But I recall being we that we engaged, um, and and I don't, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty in any case, right? Right. And so it's like right. people saying we should never have allowed China into the WTO. I don't think it should. It's that we should never have allowed them into the WTO. We perhaps should not have assumed that you know there would be a continued evolution toward, you know, adhering to the norms of the WTO by China, right? We, mm-hmm. I think that was an assumption. And, you know, maybe we just had too much faith, right, that over time uh, they would become, you know, in Bob Zellick's word, a responsible stakeholder. Um, and I think that may be a mistake, mm-hmm. that we didn't monitor things more closely all along the way. Um, but but I don't think um, I don't think that we missed the boat um, at okay. the time that the Soviet Union fell. Or I think maybe his point was rather that we should have disengaged more with China as possibly, but I don't see how that could have possibly happened not, not only in could the it world not have that happened, we lived in. Not only could it, yeah. but why, at that point in time, why would you have done it? And I just, I, again, I think one issue is for people that look at China, you know, really through just an IR lens, right, through an international right. relations lens, don't actually spend time, you know, thinking about domestic politics, right? So a lot of IR theorists really ignore their theory, right? Is, you know, every state behaves basically the same as a black box. Um, doesn't matter who's right. leading a country, doesn't matter what's same place. I look back to 2010, 2011 in China, and I see just this extraordinarily vibrant 
you know, Chinese society, right. you know, people talking about political reform, people, you know, pushing on the environment, 180,000 protests in the country in 2010. I, I think people miss, you know, the story of China, the potential evolution in China. You know, they miss entire sort of, they, they miss the, the potential that China can change again, right? If If all they focus on is, you know, looking at something from, you know, the 50,000 foot level and basically assume that everything is kind of determined, you know, from structural perspective or from outside forces. Um, so, you know, I think fundamentally, I just disagree with that way of looking at a country. Okay. Um, I think it's really important to look inside to see what forces of change are within a country as well. So what does the next decade hold for U.S.-China relations? Where do you think, I, we've been talking about, it's very easy to have hindsight. Foresight is, a, is astronomically more difficult. What do you see? How do you see the U.S. and China 10 years from now, Liz? Well, how do I see it? How do I want to see it? <laughs> how do you want to see it? How do I want to see it? What's, oh, what I want to how see, do you what I see, want it? to see is that, you know, China is evolving back in the direction of reform and opening, both in terms of its economic system and in terms of its political system. I think that depends a lot on what happens with Xi Jinping, um, whether he remains as the, you know, sort of senior uh, most leader, you know, standing above the rest of the collective leadership, whether he's moved back to the second line, the way that Mao Zedong was after the Great Leap Forward, where he just becomes one among several. You know, how does that play out? Um, uh, so I, I mean, that's what I would like to see, um, because I think opportunities then for cooperation between our countries, for partnership, I mean, they just, those increase exponentially, right? Um, if that's the case. Right. You know, more likely, I think, is that we're going to be locked in this, you know, what is people have called competitive coexistence. Um, and I guess at that level, my hope is that nothing that we do or that they do um, leads us into any kind of kinetic conflict, um, that we basically have a kind of managed competition um, and that we're battling each other as we are now, you know, basically across every dimension, you know, across the ideological, political value dimension, certainly in trade uh, and technology and, and, you know, on the security front. I mean, and this is a a battle that's playing out on the global stage. Um, I guess the only other point that I would make that I think you know, we often tend to forget is that this isn't just about the United States and China, um, and that this mm -hmm. is really about uh, you know uh, two very different systems of, of values, and those values inform all the things that we've talked about. You know, they inform the way you can conduct trade and investment. They inform you know the Belt and Road Initiative is the export of China's development model. Right. So it's, right. you know, investment led growth. It's, you know, with all the externalities, uh, you know, like environmental pollution and degradation, the lack of transparency around the contracts, you know, labor issues, all of those things. That is the way that China developed. Now these countries, too, uh, can can share in that experience. Um, so my point is only that I think we don't want to frame everything as just this U.S.-China competition. Mm -hmm. I think it's a much bigger global uh, sort of battle uh, underway for the future of the international system. As you can see in Latin America, in our own backyard. Yeah. 
So it's, it's, it, that, I think that's absolutely true. Liz, thank you for your insights and for joining us on the Hale Report. And again, Elizabeth Economy's book is The World According to China. Her latest article in the January-February issue of Foreign Affairs is Xi Jinping's New World Order, Can China Remake the International System? I highly recommend both. And also thank you to the people behind the scenes who make EconView possible, managing editor Ying Zan and our producer, Sam Fu. Please visit our website to sign up for alerts about our next podcast. <laughs>